0: We have a report concerning a dispute that took place among the disciples that turned into a very heated debate, and if the purpose of this debate were to be recorded for future posterity, it would be a debate that if I had taken part in, I would personally be very embarrassed about, because what we find out is that they were debating over which of them might be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Luke, who wasn't there, merely an investigative reporter, simply states in his chapter 9, verse 26, that an argument arose among the disciples as to which of them might be the greatest. Mark reports in his chapter 9, verse 33, that when they came to Capernaum and when they were inside the house, probably Peter's house, Jesus asked them, What were you disputing among yourselves on the way? And where it says Jesus asked them, the Greek word used for asked is a former word which suggests that Jesus had to ask them repeatedly. Because following in verse 34, it reports that they all kept silent. For on the way, they had disputed who among them might be the greatest. In other words, they were slow to answer because who wants to admit that? And I always love it when we find Jesus asking a question, as though he doesn't already know. Matthew's report says nothing about the debate or Jesus' question, but simply reports in chapter 18, verse 1, that the disciples came to Jesus asking, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? But in Matthew's report, the Greek word used for asking is a form of the word which suggests that the asking of the question broke a long period of awkward silence. Isn't the Greek language awesome? So after Jesus asked, what were you disputing on the way, there was a period of awkward silence before one of them finally broke it and said, Lord, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, don't forget what the Bible means when it uses the title kingdom of heaven. It's not talking about heaven itself, but the prophesied kingdom from heaven in which Jesus himself was prophesied to be the king. So they weren't disputing over who would be the king. They already knew that Jesus was their king. He was prophesied to sit on David's throne, but that hadn't happened yet. So the disciples were planning ahead and theorizing, which of us will be Jesus' number one in that kingdom, you know? There's 12 of us. Who's going to be ranked where? Now, folks, we can read these verses from a 21st century perspective and shake our heads, but don't forget that Jesus knew these 12 guys and everything about them before he came. He knew all about their failings, their imperfections, their lack of faith, their selfishness, and he even knew about this ridiculous, petty little debate. He knew it would take place, he knew it was going to happen from outside time before he came, but with his infinite wisdom, he still chose to pick out these particular twelve apostles. Now, isn't that encouraging to you and me, with all of our own immaturities and arrogance and stupidity and selfishness? God from outside time still thought we were worth loving, saving, and building into something that glorifies him. If he can glorify himself with these 12 guys who were debating over which of them would be the greatest, then he can certainly glorify himself with any of us. And folks, that in and of itself is a miracle which proves to the world where and who that power comes from, which is the whole point. So they were debating over which of them might be the greatest, then later Jesus asked them, what were you guys debating about on the way over here? Well, they were embarrassed, slow to answer, before one of them finally just broke the silence and asked flat out, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he sat down, according to Mark 9:35, and he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. What a concept. It's a concept that's so foreign to our way of thinking that Jesus will have to continually elaborate on it, not just in teaching, but by example, all the way up to the cross. The lower you are here in this world, which is Satan's kingdom, according to Second Corinthians four four, the lower you are here in this world, the higher you'll be in God's kingdom. And it's no wonder that the kingdom of heaven's king will be Jesus, since no one lowered himself more than he did. Before he became human, he was timeless and physically hyperdimensional, but he entered our time domain through natural childbirth. He was the God of all creation who said, let there be light in Genesis 1 verse 3, and he had been sinned against repeatedly since the Garden of Eden. And yet he was born not in a palace cradle, but a barnyard feeding trough. And his first act as king was to undergo a baptism of repentance of sins so he could be numbered as one of us. He continued that example all the way to the cross when he was again numbered as one of us between two criminals. And then he served the entire human race of all history from Adam to the very last living soul in linear time when he took upon himself their sin debt and paid it off with his own blood. When he came, he should have been first of all and served by all, but instead he came to be last of all and servant of all. So that's what he's getting into here. He set the example. You want to be counted first in my kingdom, then you'll count yourself last here in this one. Those who will be granted the most rewards will be those who in this world sought no honor for themselves, but were constantly laying themselves out there for the blessing of others. Every single time you're a blessing to somebody else, you're earning rewards and positions of greatness in God's kingdom. That's the way it works. The less you care about yourself and your greatness here, then the greater you really are. Now, this concept is a difficult one to learn and put into practice without getting into some serious hang-ups along the way, so Jesus decided to take this opportunity to give his disciples a short lecture, which is recorded in its entirety by Matthew chapter 18, Mark chapter 9, verse 36 to 50, and Luke chapter 9, verse 47 to 50. Jesus began with a visual aid and called a little child to come near. The little child came over without any hesitation, which says a lot about Jesus' nature. Even though he embodied the presence of a perfect, righteous God, he didn't exude a towering, fearful presence of judgment or the usual impairments that come with the so-called generation gap. Kids loved him. Kids loved being around him. So Jesus, in the middle of his disciples, decides to call a little child over and set him by his side and took him in his arms and then made three distinctive bullet points about our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Now, for various reasons, Mark and Luke only recorded the third point that Jesus made, but Matthew gave us all three. With Jesus sitting there with the kid next to him, he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Then whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Three how-to points. One, how to enter the kingdom. Two, how to be great in the kingdom. And three, how to receive the king's favor. How to enter the kingdom is a no-brainer for those who've been paying attention since John chapter 3. Being converted and becoming as little children is another way of saying being born again. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, unless a man is born again, he cannot ever see the kingdom. And then to really drive the point home, he said, unless a man is born of water and the spirit, born first naturally and then reborn spiritually, he can't enter the kingdom. And just like our physical birth, when we're reborn spiritually, we are not born as mature adults. We're born into a new spiritual family as God's children. Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So spiritual rebirth is point number one. Point number two, he says, then whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The measure of greatness in that coming kingdom, folks, depends on our humility right here and now. Most people don't think about this second point because we've all been taught that everybody in heaven will be equal. Now, that's partially true because in comparison to Jesus Christ, none of us deserve to even be in his kingdom, much less considered as great. None of us have any reason to boast about being there because Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 tells us, for by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So in the sense of how we got there, none of us have any reason to boast. We're all equals because we all got there because of what Jesus did. But on the other hand, Jesus is that kingdom's king, and he has been personally making several points since his Sermon on the Mount about our capacity to earn rewards in that coming kingdom. And we start earning those rewards now. We know from Revelation and several other passages of Scripture that some of those rewards will be crowns, which signify positions of authority, ruling with Christ in that kingdom. Now, folks, that's absurd. The idea is so absurd that it's prophesied that when we're all there, we will all lay our crowns down. I mean, can you imagine being in the presence of Jesus the King, looking at the holes in his hands, knowing that our being there is because of what he did? And then him handing out crowns to rule with him. I mean, that's absurd. And that's why everybody lays their crown down before the glassy sea. Because everybody's going to have pretty much the same attitude. (laughs) You've got to be kidding me. You're going to give me the position to rule this with you? But anyway, that's a rabbit trail. Don't want to get into all that. The point is, we will be ruling with Christ in that kingdom. Those are positions of authority. And they're positions that we earn. It's not freely given to us. And how are they earned? Well, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount gave us several ways, and the consistent theme is humility. Remember what Jesus said, when you pray, don't do it to be seen or heard by men, but do it privately so only God sees it. When you give to those in need, don't announce it publicly to be seen by men, but do it privately so only God sees it. So with that in view here, what does it mean specifically to humble yourself like this little child? Are you ready for this, folks? Because people have gone nuts over this verse and tried to make it real deep and real complex, and it's real simple. It means that since we've been reborn into God's family, and since we've become his little children, then it means we should behave as though God is our father. That means as his child, we should submit to him every purpose, every goal, every thought, every emotion, everything we are and to make what He wants our highest priority. Now, we don't have to do this to be children in God's kingdom, but if we're interested at all about being rewarded in God's kingdom, then what God thinks should overrule what I think or what the world thinks. When circumstances tell us one thing, but God tells us something else. If God is our Father, then what God says overrules When our feelings tell us one thing, but God tells us something different. If God is our Father, then what God says overrules what we feel. See, if we're going to take step one and call ourselves God's children, then we should be obedient to the Father that we're calling ourselves children of. Does this mean becoming perfect? No. What parent expects their child to be perfect? We're no longer to fear God as our righteous judge, since all judgment against our sin was dealt with at the cross. He is now our loving Father. So being His child and humbling ourselves before Him doesn't mean being perfect. It's about our attitude, folks. It's one of submission out of love to a loving Father. See, our problem as young Christians, we either continue treating our new Father as the judge that we used to fear, or we take the opposite extreme and behave like spoiled, rotten teenagers taking advantage of a Father's love and patience. We take the cross and we turn it into a license to sin. Now, we would never admit that that's what we're doing. We'd prefer to say it in other ways, like, God loves me for who I am, and this is just who I am. All sins are the same in the eyes of God anyway, so this doesn't matter. Jesus died on the cross so I could do this and not worry about hell anymore. You know, we've we've all made excuses, folks. But what it all comes down to is good old-fashioned pride. We've humbled ourselves long enough to take step one and be spiritually reborn into new creations. But immediately afterwards, most of us, for a while, some of us longer than others, we decide that we're going to keep control of our lives. See, we don't want to be held accountable to any kind of father, even a good one. We want to be in control. And unfortunately, there are children of God who fight their Heavenly Father at every turn their entire life, and they just keep suffering the earthly consequences over and over again. Hell is no longer an issue. We know that. But folks, there are so many other factors at stake besides hell, such as peace of mind, God's blessing, answered prayer, and the confidence of knowing you're going to get more prayer answered. And the most at stake are the eternal rewards in the coming kingdom. Why would any of us want to risk losing those? Now, don't put words in my mouth. We cannot lose our citizenship in God's kingdom. But we can miss out on rewards and rewarding positions in God's kingdom and least of all God's best for us here on the earth before the kingdom comes. Why would we risk missing out on all that just because we want to be in control? Folks, we should take every last bit of our pride and nail it to the cross with Jesus. We should take everything we are and lay it before the throne at every turn, every decision, and with every circumstance. And we should do this not because we're afraid of God, but because we know that he loves us in ways that no one else ever could or ever will. And his knowledge, his wisdom, and his experience, those are resources we should be tapped into concerning everything. And whenever God says one thing while circumstances, friends, or the world, or our heart tells us something else, we should ignore every last bit of that and follow our Father. That's what a humble child would do. You know, you hear people say all the time, follow your heart, follow your heart. There ain't no place in the Bible that says follow your heart. The Bible says to give your heart to the Lord and then follow him. That's what a humble child would do because the faith of a child is simple and it's trusting. Now, don't get me wrong. Even the most obedient and humble of children will occasionally question their father's intelligence once in a while. You know, but why, Daddy? Why, Daddy? Why do I have to wait? Why can't it be this way or that way? Why can't I have it now? That's just normal childhood curiosity and impatience. God expects that. That's normal. But as a whole, the humility of a child is simple. It's trusting and it's faithful. And the benefits of being humble like that leads to greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said those who humble themselves like this little child are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So that's point number two. Point number three, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. That's Matthew's record of it. Mark adds that he said, And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. And then Luke adds that Jesus repeated what he said earlier, according to Mark, where he said, For he who is least among you all shall be great. Which is just another way of saying, If anyone desires to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. All right, this is step three. What in the world does this mean? Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, not only me, but him who sent me. What does that mean? Jesus is going to use this sentence to springboard into another area of discussion concerning the treatment of children in general, and especially the treatment of children who are saved. But, like I said, he uses this sentence to springboard into that. Right now, he's still lecturing his disciples in response to their question. Who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This is step three. Step one was becoming a child to enter the kingdom. Step two was humbling yourself like a child to be great in the kingdom. So now step three is receiving one such child to receive the king's favor. So when he speaks here of receiving one such child, he's speaking of one who's taken steps one and two. He's talking about receiving a fellow brother or sister in Christ. And this isn't just talking about someone who carries the Christian label or wears a cross around their neck or a Jesus fish on their car. At best, that implies they've taken step one. Jesus is saying, if they've also taken step two, then anyone who receives them in my name receives not only me, but him who sent me. Now, in this verse, the word receives in the original Greek means to welcome and accept In other words, Jesus is saying to get over this whole concept of rank and greatness. If someone is a fellow brother or sister in Christ, one who's humbled themselves in Jesus' name, I don't care if he's the emperor of Rome or the emperor's janitor, whether it's a wise old sage or this little child here, if he's humbled himself in my name, then he or she is your brother or sister. You're both children of my father, so if you welcome and accept each other, you're welcoming and accepting me. And by default, receiving me is receiving the one who sent me. We aren't familiar with the typical family culture that's been around in most of the world for most of history, folks. But it used to be that if a member of any household was welcomed, it was the same as welcoming the whole house. If a prince was welcomed, it was the same as welcoming the king. So Jesus is saying, if you welcome and accept a member of my household, it's the same as welcoming and accepting me and the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all shall be great. And then later, Jesus will show them who's least among them all when he gets down on his hands and knees and personally washes all of their feet. Every last one of them. Once again, showing by example what it really means to be great in his kingdom.